Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by John Fusco. He's a well-known writer and producer of such films as Young Guns, Thunderheart, and his Netflix series, Marco Polo. We talk about his new film, The Highwaymen, starring Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson, which follows two retired Texas Rangers who were hired to hunt down the infamous Bonnie and Clyde. Let's get into it. And here we are with John Fusco. Hi, John. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm great. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you today about uh, your new film, The Highwaymen. Um, comes out on Netflix. It stars Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson. And they played Texas Rangers that hunted down Bonnie and Clyde. Now, right. yeah, th- this is a different take on the Bonnie and Clyde story. How did you come up with the idea to tell the story from the Rangers' point of view? Well, you know, uh, I've been fascinated by, by outlaws and gangsters for a long, long time, you know, from the time I was, was a kid. And so when the 1967 uh, Arthur Penn movie, Bonnie and Clyde, came out, um, I went to the drive-in with my parents hmm. and um, saw it there. And, um, you know, it, uh, it fascinated me. Um, I recognized it as, as a great movie. And, and strangely enough, I mean, it, it, it inspired me um, to pursue filmmaking. Um, but at the same time, when I dug into the true history of Bonnie and Clyde, because the movie um, really excited me about it, I found that they were not Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Hmm. Um, and that the movie had really glorified two uh, homicidal uh, damaged units, really, to say, you know, um, who who created a lot of pain and destruction and, you know, had killed 10 law officers and three civilians. And um, But beyond that, it was the representation of Texas Ranger Frank Hamer in that movie that... I realized was not only uh, completely fabricated and and far from the truth, but it was a total injustice and abomination and assassination of a a man, a law officer, who was considered to be the greatest law officer of the 20th century, Hmm. an incredibly humble uh, and and honest um, crime fighter uh, who had you know, in his time, taken on the Ku Klux Klan by himself in Texas, uh, who was a, a, you know, a defender of, of the innocent. And the more I learned about Hamer, the more I realized he was the true hero of the Bonnie and Clyde story. But he had been so defamed that his widow, Gladys, and his son, Frank Jr., sued Warner Brothers and, and won a, a uh, settlement. So... I just felt back then that someone's got to tell Frank Hamer's side of the story, who, you know, someone's got to take on the perspective of those in the ambush and why, why that went down. And so it was on my mind for, for many years. And as my writing career started, 
Um, I thought about it from time to time. It was kind of on that short list of ultimate passion projects. And uh, around 2002, I was out in the desert shooting Hidalgo with my producing partner, Casey Silver. And he asked me, you know, what I wanted to do next. What was I most passionate about? And, and I told him about Frank Hamer. And he was amazed by, by the story. He had not heard of Hamer. He, he wasn't aware of that side of the story. And he wanted to do it. But I told him that I would not go down that road until I got the blessing of Frank Jr., who was still alive and in, in his late 80s. So I found my way to Frank Jr., told him what I wanted to do. Of course, he was very cautious because he, had, he and his family had been burned by Hollywood. And, um, but when he, he uh, heard my vision of the movie and how we wanted to do it, he gave me his blessing and became a real ally and supporter. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that sounds like the right way to go about it. Um, you know, uh, for the people listening out there, they may not know, but you also wrote Young Guns and Young Guns 2. And right. uh, this story kind of reminds me of Young Guns 2, where the, the guy is talking to the, the old Billy the Kid and getting the, the real story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Frank Hamer and Manny Galt were Texas Rangers who really represented the old time ranger. Uh, who patrolled the border on horseback with Winchester. Hamer had been in over 50 gunfights. Uh, he had been shot 17 times. Um, he was just, he was a, a legend in his own time. And then in 1934, he was retired. He was doing some, some security consulting for oil companies. And Bonnie and Clyde um, were out there as you know, part of this new gangster era with Dillinger and, and Babyface Nelson, and um, they were making headlines. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the and the fledgling uh, FBI had been chasing Bonnie and Clyde with a one thousand man dragnet for two years and couldn't catch them. So finally, Texas uh, they didn't know where to turn or what to do, and the head of prisons, Lee Simmons. Um, who was was really uh, reeling from a crazy thing that happened where Bonnie and Clyde didn't break into his prison. They, they didn't break out of his prison. They broke in and freed a bunch of convicts. Uh, so he went to, uh, in killing a guard in the process, he, he decided it was time to go look up Frank Hamer. And that was, at that time, that was like going to look up Wyatt Earp, a right. wild Bill Hickok. So you're right about that. This was like old-time you know, old West legend, um, who then had to make the transition from horse and Winchester to 1934 V8 Ford machine rifle, a suit jacket and a fedora. And, uh, so those two guys, two Texas Rangers going on the road, um, to hunt down Bonnie and Clyde is just, I mean, it's that in and of itself is just such a rich concept, you know? Mm -hmm. And they didn't even use wiretaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, um, the Hamer really, he relied on his old-time ranger skills. Uh, that's not to say that he, he didn't evolve. Um, he, he was a smart lawman, and he knew where to use forensics and the new stuff when it, when it worked, when it could work. But, you know, it wasn't working in 1934 with Bonnie and Clyde. And so he, he went and picked up Manny Galt. And the two of them uh, t 
took Hamer's wife's 1934 Ford, and they they followed the trail for 102 days. Uh, and wow. Hamer's Hamer's philosophy was: we've got to get into the head of Clyde Barrow. We've got to think like him, live like him. We've got to sleep in the car. Um, you know, they were you know eating sardines and living in migrant camps and. Um, just following the trail into ha- until Hamer could put together a pattern. And it was a pattern that he had seen before with, with uh, outlaws from the early days. Huh. Very cool. Now, yeah, I, you, you pretty much did the opposite of, of glorifying the violence of Bonnie and Clyde, um, which bugged you so much as, as a young man. And I, I really enjoyed the way um, the film keeps a distance between Bonnie and Clyde and the audience. You know, whether yes. it's it's long shots or or obscure uh, close ups. Um, did you work that into the script or was that more of a decision by the director? You know, that's how it was written right from the beginning. That that was the it's beautiful. The, the idea for the approach um, that they were going to be shadow figures. And we we're we we're for the most part going to see, you know, see them from the point of view of, of the lawmen, which, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers, but. We kind of see them when they saw them, or catch glimpses of them, and mm-hmm. but we also see snippets, you know, of of the of the horror. Um, but you know, Bonnie and Clyde have, you know, they've had their screen time. <laughs> and, yeah, and, right. And, and and then some. And um, so, uh, you know, we writers, you know, we we love outlaws and gangsters, and and it's a sexy world to delve into, um, but. Uh, the other side of, of these guys who, who had to stop basically what was a rolling arsenal. I mean, to think about what those two had in that car. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like trying to stop a runaway train with hazardous materials because every roadblock that they, they ran, they were leaving dead bodies and, you know, killing people randomly. And, um, so it was, you know, high time to tell the other side of the story. Definitely. Now, is it true, you, you said you've been kicking around the idea for a long time. Is it true that at one point, uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman were going to play these parts? Yes. Um, you know, once the, the script was, was completed, and that, that was, you know, it was a long process um, because my very first draft was the Frank Hamer story, Cradle to the Grave. Hmm. And, um, I mean, it, it was, you know... It, it, it went back to his early Ranger days, and it was wrapped around the hunt for Bonnie and Clyde. But mm-hmm. we eventually, Casey Silver, the producer, and I, he's been a great creative partner for most of my career. Um, we sat down, and, and we were trying to get our arms around it, and we decided to strip away all of the, the, the backstory and just focus in earnest on the hunt for Bonnie and Clyde. So when that script was done, we had this kind of what we felt was a strong two-hander. Hmm. And Casey asked me, he said, so who do you see as the two guys? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to have Redford and Newman back for, like, their third and final mm-hmm. movie together? What a capper on their careers. It's kind of like Butch and Sundance, you know, yeah. years, years later. Um, and I remember Casey laughed and said, that's, you know, I love that idea. We'll never get them, but that's a great place to start. And, but we got them right out as soon as they read the script. Um, and so I, I, I did quite a bit of work with, with Paul and Bob. 
Um, and we were moving down the road with it in that direction. And it was kind of the talk of the town. Redford and Newman are coming back to do number three. Um, and then Paul uh, got sick, sadly. Hmm. And we, we lost him. And so it was kind of like, you know, because people ask me, why did this, why has the script been sitting around for 15 years? And, you know, where, where do you go from there when you've had Redford and Newman? Yeah. Uh, but this something great happened during that time. And that's Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson got older and, <laughs> and, um, and they got that patina on them and became perfect. In fact, they're closer to the actual ages of the characters than Redford and Newman would have mm. been. They were much older. Um, and the other thing is, is that as great as that would have been, um, it, it would have been, I think the event would not have been the, the untold sto- side of the Bonnie and Clyde story. It would be Redford and Newman are back together. Right. And I think that in hindsight, that it, it, it could have um, been a distraction where with Kevin and Woody, you know, we're really seeing the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a wonderful choice. And it makes sense that you, you sat on the script for so long until the, the actors aged or you found them at the right age. Because, you know, Woody has that background in, um, you know, being the modern day of Bonnie and Clyde in Natural Born Killers. Yeah, that's exactly. That's yeah. right. And yeah. also, uh, you know, Costner, The Untouchables, right? So yeah. Yep. It, it, it fits right in, but it's, yeah, it's not as on the surface as, as Redford and Newman. So, yeah, right. wonderful choice in casting. Yeah, those guys, they just kill it. Uh, I'm just so proud of them and um, what they brought to it. And, you know, we did, uh, we did special private screenings for the descendants mm-hmm. of, the, of the characters. Oh, that's you know, great. Hamer and Galt and the Hamer family who has had to endure... You know, Frank Jr. Uh, passed away, unfortunately, wasn't able to see, see this happen. But his great-grandson, you know, brought his family, his kids, you know, to the screening. His kids weren't even really aware of, hmm. of their great-great-grandfather's uh, role in the Bonnie and Clyde story because he kept it from them because it had been a, a, a subject of kind of shame for the family. And a lot of lot of agony, and again, unjustly. Right. Uh, so when we screened it for for the Hamer family, at the end, John Lee and I came out and said, "Any concerns, thoughts?" And uh, Travis Hamer started to speak, and he broke down. And his kids were looking at him, and he just he sat there and cried for a lot. And he said, "My family's been waiting for this for so long." And the thing that really moved him was Kevin's portrayal, and mm. he said said it was just spooky, you know, how he just really, he captured, he captured Frank Hamer in such a, a powerful way. Yeah, I would have to agree. It was wonderful performances. Um, now, now, you've worked with Netflix before um, with your series Marco Polo. Yes. Did, did that sort of lead into this connection? Because um, this is a, a Netflix film. Yes, it, um, it, in part it did. Um, you know, my partner, Casey Silver, um, he also recently produced a, a limited series at Netflix called Godless. Hmm. And so between Marco Polo and Casey with Godless, we had relationships at Netflix. And because Casey never stopped pushing to get this movie made, even over those 15 years, 
there was never a three-month period that went by without him uh, getting in touch with me with an update, saying, oh. you know, we're going to make it happen, we're going to make it happen. And yeah. so finally, um, you know, he contacted me and said, hey, you know, look, you've got, you have your relationship and experience with Netflix, I have mine, um, I'm going to take it there. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, and that just, it was all ready to go. And we had Kevin, Woody, John Lee, the script, uh, which had been, it had been considered over those years as, you know, one of those scripts that, um, and it had, it had a, a, a good reputation. It's like my, uh, my manager who had been an agent for years said it was looked at as a kind of litmus test for, for, uh, for agents. You know, you, you know, everyone read the highwayman. So it had a re- had a reputation, and Netflix was just like, "Are you kidding me? Let's go, let's go do it." Yeah, and so you enjoy working with them, Netflix. I do, I do. You know, it's um, you know, uh, with with the series, uh, I had the opportunity to um, to open up a story world in a in a really novelistic way. Um, I know, so I, I you know, the, the streaming has been exciting for me as a as a storyteller, mm-hmm. and. Um, and again, this, this type of movie, um, you know, it's, they allowed us, they allowed John Lee to go out artistically and, and do it our way, the way that we wanted to. And, um, you know, it's, you know, it's in a, a risk averse, um, world out there with cinema and, uh, you know, you, you know, they give us the opportunities to tell the stories that we're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a. I mean, of course, there's violence in it, but in a lot of ways, it's a it's a subtle film. Um, yes, the, the humor in it is is very subtle but very effective. Um, even your your references to the Great Depression are sort of just in passing. Just it, it exists. Mm-hmm. So is that important for yeah. you to capture the time? Absolutely, absolutely, and to let the movie breathe. You know, mm-hmm. um, John Lee and I were talking about it last night. I mean. Um, you know, there's the old, uh, the, the studio approach to a movie like this, you know, would, would be, you know, okay, it's, uh, let's cut to the action. Let's cut to the, you know, straight, let's amp stuff up. But mm-hmm. this is, this is a kind of, in a way, like a, a tone poem, a haunting elegiac tone poem that, that breathes and, and just, uh, works on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, uh, it, it what I, I call it casting a spell, ah. and it's what I I try to do in in all projects is if you can get the the viewer you know under the spell of the time and place and characters, um, you know you you don't have to to feel uh, handcuffed to the obligatory uh, action beats every you know five minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and by the end of it, you do. Um... You, you feel what they feel. You you see the absurdity of, uh, you know, the crowds and, and the fame oh, yeah. associated yes. with Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. So very well done. Thank you so much. Now, my podcast is for indie filmmakers. So uh, before we wrap this up, can I just ask you, uh, if you if you have any advice for young screenwriters or anybody starting out trying to write a script? Well, you know, it's... If you're passionate about your project, you know, like I have been with the Highwaymen, um, just you know, never give up on it, and I describe it as willing it into existence. 
Mm-hmm. Um, find those partners. Find, you know, get it to the right people. Just don't stop and believe in it. I, you know, I have an indie film that I've been trying to get made uh, in Hawaii for years, and um, it's it means the world to me. And it, it hasn't been easy, but um, I just keep trying to find ways to to find other iterations of it, even um, to to rethink it. And, uh, to you know, to find the right right venue for it, and you know, last night I actually ran into some people, and you know that script was in the back of my mind, and I had a conversation with them, and they were interested, and so I think I'll be you know getting that indie project together. Fantastic. But if if you have a, a screenplay, you have a project that you believe in, and it's it's been sitting on the shelf. Never look at it as as dead as something dead or something that didn't take off. I mean, again, 16 years now, that Highwaymen script sat on my desk. Wow. Uh, uh, let's see, I think uh, Thunderheart took me seven or eight years. Um, some other projects took 11 years. It's, it's like having a real estate portfolio. Mm. And I keep, on my desk, I keep a whiteboard, uh, and I have my, my passion projects written down, and every day I look at them. And at a certain at a certain time of the day, usually after I'm done writing, I go down that list and ask myself, what do I need to do to keep that project going? It's like your children, you know, let me check in with this one, let me check in with that one. Yeah. And and just, you know, will it into existence. Make it happen. Give it a start date. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And I can't wait to to see what's next with your with your new projects. I'm guessing it's not in modern day. That's just a hunch. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. That's great. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, The Highwaymen, uh, it's not on Netflix just yet, but it's coming out real soon, right? Well, it's going to open in select theaters on March 15th, hmm. uh, and then uh, it'll launch worldwide on Netflix on March 29th. Beautiful. Well, well, thank you, John. Is there anything else you want to add? No, just, you know, thank you for your interest. And again, this is, you know, such a, a special project. And I, I really hope everyone will either get a chance to get out into one of the cities and see it on the big screen because John Lee Hancock uh, uh, is he's masterful. And I think this is one of his best, um, if not March 29th on Netflix. Beautiful. Well, thank you, John. Thank you so much. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit. And if you like this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you? Have enough. Indie Film Grid.